0: love to invite you if you're new uh, to our intro to harvest class we have that specifically for new people and that happens once a month and that is designed to answer your questions hey what is this church about is this a good fit for me and my family Uh, so it answers your questions it also helps you get connected to our church so that is an hour after this service and it happens uh, right on the other side of this wall. There's snacks provided, there's, there's childcare provided. So if you'd like to do that, sign up on our website. That is next week after this service for an hour. We'd love to host you. Uh, there are a few people that came out of that class here this, this last month and have made a number of decisions, have got connected to our church in different ways or uh, maybe baptized or, or perhaps joining a group or serving or I could go on and on, but there are a few that actually wanted to make the decision to officially be like part of the family. We want to be part of the membership. Not everyone makes that decision who goes to that class and that's fine, but a few did and so I want them just to wave at you. So first of all, uh, Donna and Scott, where are you guys, Donna and Scott, right there? Okay, Donna and Scott are right. Right there and then Juanita I saw Juanita over here and then Derek and Ashley where are you guys at Derek and Ashley getting baptized today at the end of the service all are wanting to come and to uh, say hey this is our church home this is our family we have them raise their hands so that you can know hey they're new I can meet them I can welcome them into the family but if you would like to welcome them in just kind of officially would you just give them a round of applause and say that we're, we're glad about that and we are we are glad about that uh to each and every one of you uh super super thrilled to have you officially part of the family some of them uh, some of these guys are are new new and some have been around for a while but nevertheless uh joining let me say happy mother's day to everybody of course uh today is mother's day I was, uh, I was talking with my wife last night about days like Mother's Day or Father's Day because there's a majority of the room, celebratory time, great time. It's Mother's Day, I'm going to call my mom, or I'm gonna, the kids are going to make me breakfast or something like that. But I also understand on Mother's Day that that can be painful for some. Uh, right uh, after our first service, uh, one of our ladies in church grabbed me and with tears just streaming down her cheeks, said this is my first Mother's Day without mom. And I, I did not realize how much it would affect me today. It surprised me, but it's been a tough day. It's been an emotional day. Or, or perhaps it's even I want to be a mom and and I can't, or I didn't have a mom, or I didn't have a good mom. So what do you do on, on days like today? I see some of you, you're tearing up right now. Um, I want to help us as a church uh, be mature. The Bible says to rejoice with those that rejoice and to weep with those that weep. So I think it's very important for us to understand on a day like today. It's Mother's Day. It is designed to be a a happy celebratory time. And there are those that come to the day uh, honestly weeping and to have the maturity to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and say, I'm glad that you're a mother. I'm glad that you had a good mom. That's a mature thing. But there are also others who are rejoicing and you need to have the maturity to understand that not everybody comes in today rejoicing and that i want to weep with them and i want to put my arm around them i want to help them and i think that's just good as we go into mother's day or or father's day or these sorts of days that we understand that it's not all roses but it's not all bad either and that we can we can rejoice with each other who do rejoice, and we can weep with those who weep. And I think if we have that heart, we just be a loving, healthy church family that we can love on each other, even, even through uh, something like a, like a Mother's Day. I do want to thank you for uh, being generous. Every week I try to take a specific way and tell you, hey, here's how some of your funds were deployed, you know, in the last week or two weeks or so. And uh, we actually got presented with an opportunity about a week or two ago. I think it was maybe uh, last Tuesday that, that it came across my plate. But uh, Hilltop Baptist Church, they're a church in Indiana. They're about 45, 50 minutes from us. Uh, many of you would remember uh, Steve Reerk, who is here at church now, actually serves on staff there and is real plugged in at that church. He contacted us and said, we're trying to help another church in our area uh, and we would like some expertise when it comes to uh, sound equipment, audio visual stuff, live streaming. So we were able to to lend uh, some perspective, maybe some wisdom, some things that we've learned over the years, although we haven't figured it all out. But we also learned that this church had a need just tangibly in equipment. And so we had just upgraded our soundboard uh, there in the back and we had our old soundboard that we were planning to sell for, uh, it's worth some money. But we said, you know what, we have this. We don't need to sell it. We can give it to you, be a blessing to you. We found out that they needed some speakers, which we don't have old speakers laying around, but we said, we'll buy them for you. We'll we'll gladly buy them for you, invest in them uh, for you. So I mentioned that to you for two reasons. One, to let you know that some of what you give was just a blessing this week uh, to another church in our area, but also to let you know that as a church, we are on the same team as churches who preach the gospel, who love the Lord. Certainly, there are churches that don't have a true gospel, and that's a whole different story. But if a church knows the the gospel, they'll proclaim it. Uh, we are not in competition with them. We we are not enemies with them. Uh, there's there's nothing tribal about that. We want to understand and be reminded as a church that man, we're striving for the same goal: to evangelize people and to share the good news of Jesus and to see people grow and be built up in their faith and that we can be team players and we are grateful as a church that when we were young and fledgling 30 something years ago that there were churches that were more mature that helped us and invested in us and gave to us and really put wind in our sails. And we wanna do the same thing for other churches in our area or internationally. Uh, So thank you. The bottom line is thank you for being generous because we were able to go help another church this week in a few small tangible ways uh, because of you and and what you give on a consistent basis. So thank you for that. I will also say when it comes to financial stuff, uh, we film every quarter a financial update for our church because we don't wanna be secretive about funds. We don't want you to guess what's happening, where's money going. So every quarter we film an update And uh, that will actually be delivered to your email inbox this week. So if you don't regularly, I'm saying it for this reason, if you don't regularly get our emails, because we have a weekly communication that goes out. So if you don't get that on a weekly basis, please stop by our welcome desk and let us know. We'll figure out, is that going to your junk? Uh, Is that something that maybe, you know, we just don't have the right email address? So if you don't get that regularly, let us know, and know that this week a financial update will come to you because we want to be as transparent and as open as possible because this is your church and we're a family and we want to share things as a family and have that transparency. So with that being said, turn to Esther chapter number 4. Those are all my preliminaries, and now we get to dive into today's text, Exter, chapter number four. I am going to have a word of prayer and ask the Lord just to bless our time together, and then we will begin to work at this piece by piece. So pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. We don't take it for granted. Lord, thank you for the opportunity even to be able to to be a blessing to people. Lord, it's been awesome uh, even this week to I share resources with churches in our area. Lord, it was awesome yesterday to, to give away a whole bunch of food to, to people that were in need and just the little things that we're able to do week by week. We, we, we say thank you to you. It's a blessing to be the church. Lord, we thank you for your word and we ask as we open it that we wouldn't just learn or understand the history or understand the context, but Lord, we ask that you would apply this to our lives and that you would challenge us in real tangible practical ways we love you and we ask this in jesus name amen well if you're new let me tell you two things number one we are a church we love to preach through the bible especially verse by verse book by book we've been doing that now for four weeks in esther we are literally working through this verse by verse and not skimming anything or skipping anything but just letting the text guide the conversation which helps me it prevents me from hobby horsing my favorite subjects and it allows the text to guide Uh, But let me catch you up on the story. So the story thus far in Esther is chapter 1. We're introduced to a Persian king named Xerxes. It's roughly 2,500 years ago, 480 B.C. And Xerxes is this man who rules and reigns. He's this man that has a a lot of money, a lot of power. He throws a party. He gets drunk at the party. And he ends up through a series of events divorcing his wife, Queen Vashti. And he banishes her and, and says that she's no longer queen. Chapter number two, we're introduced to Mordecai and Esther, two Jewish people who are subjects in the Persian Empire. Mordecai and Esther are cousins, but Mordecai is older and became Esther's adoptive dad when Esther's parents passed away. We don't know how they died, but we know that they did. So he's her adopted dad, and Esther gets roped into a competition that the Persian Empire puts on to try to get a new queen. And the competition is, is quite frankly and bluntly, a sex competition, not just a beauty competition. And Esther gets roped into this. She participates in this, and she ends up becoming the queen of Persia. Chapter number three, we're introduced to a new character, the fourth primary character, the antagonist of the story, a man named Haman. Haman is introduced to us as an Agagite, which is uh, very important. That means that Haman's forefathers and his lineage, it has always been contrary to Esther and Mordecai's forefathers and lineage. The ancestors of the Agagites and the ancestors of the Jewish people are ancient tribal enemies. They have tried to destroy each other for many, 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 many decades, even centuries. So when Haman the Agagite learns that Mordecai, the Jew, will not bow to him, will not pay him respect or reverence. He is going to seek as the prime minister of the government to destroy Mordecai and even leverage this opportunity to destroy all of the Jewish people. And he thus far has succeeded in his plan and he enlists the help of King Xerxes to actually sign a decree saying 11 months from this day, We will exterminate the Jewish people. And that's where we left the story last week at the end of chapter 3 was this decree being signed in by the Persian king and the Persian prime minister and being publicized to the whole realm that we in fact will destroy 11 months from now all of the Jewish people. As you could imagine, this is going to create quite the buzz and a lot of consternation in the heart of the Jewish people, which is where we pick up chapter number four. I'll let you know up front before we tackle chapter four that today, this is all, the whole text is moving towards one big request from me to you, the church family, and then one big idea. So we're going to end today with a big request and a big idea. But if you understand, you'll understand chapter four more if you get that this is a series of messages between Esther and her cousin Mordecai, okay? Esther and Mordecai cannot see each other, they cannot be in person, but they can communicate via messengers. So we're going to see seven distinct messages, almost like passing notes back and forth in class. If you've ever done that, this is what they're going to do. They're going to pass these notes back and forth and these, sh- these messengers are going to shuttle to and fro to have this conversation between these two. So let's pick it up. Esther 4, verse number one. We're going to cover the whole chapter this morning. Here we go. Verse one. Message one is simply this. Mordecai is upset that they're going to be killed. So here we go. Mordecai perceived all that was done. Mordecai rent his clothes, he put on sackcloth with ashes, he went out into the midst of the city and cried with a loud and a bitter cry. So these are easily understood signals of deep distress. He tears his clothes, he puts on sackcloth, sackcloth would be like goat's hair or camel's hair, something that was very rough and irritating to your skin, puts on ashes on top of his head, this is, these are all signals of grief. This is an external grieving process, and Mordecai has the weight of losing his life, but also Mordecai has the weight of potentially causing the destruction of the 10 to 15 million Jews who are in the kingdom at this time because he was the one who didn't bow, and he's the reason that this decree has come. So he is obviously grieved. Verse 2, he came before the king's gate for none might enter into the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. So he did not, the king did not want mourners inside of the palace walls. And it seems that the cardinal rule in Persia was just keep Xerxes happy. Okay, don't act sad, don't act grieved, make sure he's happy. And this was stereotypical of ancient Near Eastern rulers to have a rule that you couldn't be sad around me. You would even see this with Xerxes' father if you read the biblical book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah in chapter 2 is the cupbearer to Darius, Xerxes' dad, and he has this sad face because he wants to go back to Jerusalem and build the walls, and Darius looks at Nehemiah and says, why the long face? And you're told that Nehemiah was very fearful because he knew, don't have a long face around him, just paint the smile on, fix your makeup, just have a good time. Do not be sad around the king. So he understands this, and he's not going into the king's gate, but he's going as far as he can. I'm going to go up to the king's gate. I'm going to mourn. In verse 3, in every province, whithersoever the king's commandment and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews. There was fasting and weeping and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So there's not just grieving on the part of Mordecai, but on the part of the entire people because orders have been given to exterminate them. So this verse is the low point in the entire narrative. Read the book of Esther from cover to cover. This verse is the low point. Destruction is imminent and we are grieving and wailing outwardly like they have lost it and rightfully so because of the impending doom. Now, side note, just on emotions and what to do with them from a Christian perspective. The Bible is full of grown men and women who process and express their emotions outwardly and publicly. Okay, you can read the Bible and find that all over the place. There are people who go through a difficult season, and they don't suppress it or button it up or act like they're not going through a difficult season, but they actually Push that to the outside. And the Bible never advocates that you just bottle it all up and that you keep all of your emotions on the inside. I don't even think that the medical community would advocate that because it generally leads to increased stress, that generally leads to increased anxiety, to increased physical issues. It generally will not help your spiritual life nor your friendships with other people if you just want to suppress and push down all of the time. But that's very common in religious people. Oftentimes, the more religious someone is, the more that they think, I need to be mature, I don't need to have emotions, I don't need to have any problems, I just need to, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine all the time, which is not a biblical idea. That is a very ancient Greek idea of stoicism, that somehow you're more mature if you can just process your emotions by not having any and act robotic about everything, but that is not a biblical idea. Jesus had an emotional gamut that was more than just, you know, anger. Some guys, that's all they got, like anger, that's it. Anger or eat, you know? Jesus had more than that. He wept. His friend died and he wept, right? The Bible is full of psalms of lament. The majority of the Psalter are lament psalms or people expressing very raw emotion to God. We even have a book in the Bible called Lamentations, which is someone lamenting or mourning or grieving through the whole book. So the Bible never advocates that you just bottle it all up and that you don't have any emotions. However, I will be clear to say that the Bible does not advocate the secular approach or the newer approach to emotions, which is get in deep touch with your emotions, discover them, and then let them guide your life. The the modern approach for many Americans is that I will let my emotions, I won't just find them and, and realize that I have them and not be scared of them, but I will actually bow to them and I will give them sovereignty over my life. I will see my emotions as something that more or less I have to obey. If I'm angry, then I act angry. If I'm sad, then I must act sad. If I, I, just, I just follow my emotions around, they drag me all over the place. And that's unhelpful because we oftentimes have whacked out feelings. Anyone else felt whacked out at all this week? Just me? Okay? We oftentimes have emotions or feelings that aren't right. So if you just say, well, you know, follow your heart, follow your emotions, follow your feelings. Ever heard that? Follow your heart? Not good advice. That's not biblical either. If I followed my emotions, I would be in jail by tonight, okay? If I followed my emotions, I would have murdered every one of my kids by now. It would have been done, Right? You know, you know I'm telling the truth, parents, okay? So you can't, you can't just suppress it, but you also can't just be subservient and follow your emotions and bow down to them all the time. So what do we do with our emotions, right? We understand they're there. We're not scared of them. We, we understand they're there, but the biblical way is not deny, but also not just live by them. It's actually to voice them invent them to our good, good father, to take them to God. And that's what you will find in lamentations. That's what you will find in the Psalms where people are lamenting and mourning, or perhaps they even just have thoughts that are theologically incorrect, but it's how they feel. God, I just feel like you've forsaken me. I feel like you're not there anymore. I feel like you you hate me now. All those sorts of things, we feel that stuff sometimes, right? And the proper biblical way is to actually take that to the Lord. I'm not suggesting you can never talk to a friend or you can never talk to a counselor, but I am suggesting that you as a Christian should take that to the Lord first and foremost and go to him before anyone else and actually process those with him. So that's an aside, but it's kind of in the text because there's a lot of raw emotion in the text. And we find in verse number four, that Esther's maids and her chamberlains came and told it to her. So the point is that, All of this emotion on Mordecai's part is going to be communicated to Esther via messengers. So here's message two from Esther to Mordecai, which is basically, stop it. Like, like, I don't know what you're doing, but stop it. Here it is. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai and to take away his sackcloth from him, but he received it not. So first of all, she's grieved. Why is she grieved? You'll find in a minute, she's not grieved because she knows the destruction that is upon them. She has no idea. She's oblivious. She's grieved because Mordecai's grieved, right? Which is an important lesson just for us to know, especially uh, maybe as, as parents or leaders or adults, when you have young people around you, or even your spouse or something like that, or you walk into your place of employment tomorrow, you oftentimes set the emotional temperature in the room. When you are, are grieving, someone else naturally is going to grieve. When you are upbeat, other people will naturally be upbeat. You have an effect on people. Your, your emotions have an effect on their emotions. So it's not to say you always need to have positive emotions or you always need to have negative emotions. It's just to note that you do set the emotional temperature as you go places. So she's grieved just because Mordecai is. So she sends him close, Presum- presumably so that he would change and that he would enter the gate and he would go about his business and that he would, he would stop. But we're told that Mordecai refuses it and says, like, I didn't need a, a trip to the mall. I'm fine. Now I'm going to keep grieving. I'm going to keep on. So here's message number three. Then called Esther for Hattach, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend upon her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. So she has no idea what's going on. I want you to find out. Go talk to him. What's happening? Why is it happening? Why are you grieving? Why do you have ash on your head? Why are you in sackcloth? What is the big deal, right? Esther has been sentenced to death and she has no idea. So, message number four, verse seven, Mordecai told him of all that had happened unto him and of the sum of money that Haman promised to pay the king's treasury for the Jews to destroy them. Remember that last week? that Haman added this financial motivation to King Xerxes and who manipulated him by using finances to say if we destroy them, we could plunder them, and this, we need, we'd fill our coffers with all this. So he, here's what's happening. Here's the money that he's promised. Verse 8, also he gave him the copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther, declare it unto her, and charge her that she should go in unto the king to make supplication unto him and make request before him for her people and hattach came and told esther the words of mordecai so what mordecai says is esther you don't know this but we're done for we're toast unless you go mediate your husband is a maniac go talk him off the ledge it seems like you're in close proximity to him, so please go help us out and go have a conversation with him. The king just decreed that we're all dead. He's going to take all of our stuff. And in case you think that this is hyperbolic language, in case you think that I'm just being a drama queen, I'll, here's the decree, like word for word, go show it to her. Like, I did not make this up. This just happened. And we know in Esther's life from chapter 2, verse 20, that Esther had a habit of obeying her adopted dad. Chapter 220 tells us that Mordecai told her, don't share your faith. Don't let anyone know you're a Jew. And she did that and it told us that it was her custom. It was her habit to obey Mordecai. And we're left now in the text wondering, will she obey him in this? Because Mordecai knows what he's asking is more than just, you know, text your husband if you don't mind. What he's asking of her is a tall order. And she's going to be hesitant to do it. And she says exactly that in her message back to him. And she tells him, this is a suicide mission. You know what you're asking. This this is not a good idea. Verse 10, Esther spake unto Hathach and gave him commandment unto Mordecai. So now Hathach, you know, he's just running back and forth, back and forth, like a ping pong ball. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever, whether man or woman, shall come into the king's inner court, who is not called, there is one law of his, and here's the law, put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these thirty days. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. So what Esther says is this. Um, yeah, about that whole, like, go see my husband thing, that's not a good idea. I don't know if you know this, but you can't just go see the king unless he calls for you. And if you go see him when he hasn't called for you, unless he hits the golden buzzer and like confetti rains on you, like you're dead. And this this isn't just like, hey, you know, some people have this. This is for everybody, including me. And oh, remember what happened to the previous queen? Remember chapter 1 when he said, "Come here," and she said, "No, I ain't coming." And he not only deposed her and divorced her, but banished her. And then my man went so far. if you remember chapter one? We studied it. He made a decree and sent it to the whole known world that basically said, "Vashi did oppose me, but I got her. And I rule my roost. And you guys rule your roost too. Remember that? He was sure to make sure that everyone knows that I rule, that I'm in charge, and I'm not, I'm not going to get my comeuppance from some woman. So, you're talking about a man whose ego is extremely fragile. And Esther is not, she is not being dramatic when she says, um, Yeah, this would not be a good idea. I'm probably going to die. And furthermore, she says, Mordecai, he hasn't called for me in 30 days. Okay? Meaning, it's highly unlikely that the king slept alone for 30 days. Right, even history, biblical history and just history history, like go read the encyclopedia, will tell you that Xerxes became very preoccupied with women and his harem and his concubines. And we read all about that in chapter 2. He had a whole system. He had a whole slew of women and, and all these you know virgins and all these concubines and all this sort of stuff. So when Esther says, he hasn't called for me in 30 days, what she is saying is, the only thing that I had going for me was my beauty and my figure, but apparently that's not in high demand any longer. So I don't have a lot of leverage to go see the king. It's not like we went on a date last night, and he, you know, whispered sweet nothings in my ear, and we have all this Romeo-Juliet romance, and he took me on a tour through the park and showed me his new construction projects. Not. Nah. She is the queen, but she is not involved in the political system. She's so not involved that she doesn't even know when decrees are being made that would be her execution, okay? She has no idea. She's oblivious. She, she's a little trophy. That's all she is, and she knows it. And her response to Mordecai is sensible. It's logical. It's, it's thought through. It's not dramatic at all. This is a suicide mission. You're asking me to not just put my life on the line, but really I don't think there's any hope. Mordecai shoots back to her and he's going to give her a threefold argument as to why she should do what he says. Here's what he says. Verse 13, argument one. Commanded to answer Esther, think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. So Esther, first of all, if you think you're going to escape when the day of destruction comes, you're fooling yourself. You're going to be outed. I don't know if Mordecai's suggesting that he's going to out her. I don't think he is, but he is at least implying that somebody's going to tell on you. Like they're going to go kill those people, and you're like, wait, I grew up with the queen. She was my neighbor, and they're going to let them know. And like you're not, you're not going to <laughs> escape the day of destruction. First of all, second of all. For thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place, but thou and thy father's house shalt be destroyed. So he doubles down on you're going to be destroyed if you don't do this. But Mordecai here flips a switch. A few verses prior, we reached the low point in the book, but now right here, verses 14 through 17, the whole book hinges on these verses. Mordecai flips a switch, and he actually begins to exhibit very profound faith. And what Mordecai says is, if you don't do this and you don't mediate and advocate for us, I don't know how, but I believe that deliverance is going to come from somewhere else. And what Mordecai is saying is, I know that my circumstances are bleak and I know that this looks very dark and very heavy, but I also know the covenant promises of God. I know that God promised Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and in turn his offspring, that he would be with them, that he would bless them, that he would multiply their seed as the stars in the sky, that that blessing would come through the Jewish lineage to the ends of the earth. And what Mordecai is saying is, my circumstances are miserable, but I have the covenant promises of God, and I'm going to bank on that right now, right? That's a statement of faith. That's something that we would all do well to learn from as Christians, that at times, Our circumstances are miserable, and it feels like God has forgotten me, God is just punishing me, he's hands off in my life, why would he do this, why would he let this come? This is heavy, I'm in grief, I'm in mourning, my emotional state is all over the place. At times, our circumstances can feel all out of whack, but you have to know, what do you do in those moments? Well, process your emotions with the Lord, sure, that's fair, but beyond that, what do you do? you go back to the covenant promises of God. And you say, you know, I read this thing and it told me that if I'm in Jesus, that Jesus, his love for me is fierce, that he'll never leave me, that he'll never forsake me, that he has a plan for my life, that he's not hands off, that that he's not just letting me drift all by my lonesome. You have to go back to the covenant promises of God. And Mordecai is doing that in this moment and it's profound and it's deep and it's wise to say, look, Destruction may come and a lot of us may die, but I know that I know that I know that God's promises are still valid. He, that he's not, he's not just leaving us all by our lonesome here. And then he says this, and who knoweth whether thou art come into the kingdom for such a time as this? The most famous phrase from the whole book of Esther. You probably heard a sermon on it over the years at some point in time. Esther, I'm not sure. but well, who knows? Maybe, maybe God put you here for this reason. Maybe you're where you are at precisely for this moment and God's going God's to gonna use you in a great way. Esther, maybe it wasn't just happenstance that Vashti said no and she got deposed. It, maybe it, it wasn't just, you know, coincidence that there was this competition and you got roped into that. and Now you're in this place of power. Perhaps God has positioned you right now, right here for this moment to be used of him. Now, that's, that's an important thought because up until this point, Esther has demonstrated zero faith in the whole book. Up until this point, Esther has capitulated. She's gone with the flow. She's just a little leaf in a river just being carried along with the current. Whatever the person say, whatever they want. She, she breaks the law of God left and right. The dietary laws, the, the laws about sex before marriage, the laws about marrying a pagan, all of it. She breaks it all. She covers her faith. She's not a great example up until this point. But Mordecai says, who knows, maybe God still wants to use you. Maybe he has a plan. Maybe he's going to take all that and he's going to work it for his good. And maybe, maybe he, he has you on mission right now, which is important for us as his people to know because more often than not, I feel like Esther chapter one, two, and three more than I feel like the Esther we're going to see in chapters five, six, seven, and eight. More often than not, I'm the person who feels like, you know what? I fell short today. I wish I, I, I thought I would be further in my Christian life than I am right now. I've, I've messed up again. There, there's these issues. These things plague me. There's, anyone else feel that way sometimes? Yeah? What do you do in this moment? Say, well, you know, God doesn't want to use me. God doesn't have a plan for me. I mean, obviously I messed up. Obviously I'm not super Christian. You have to know that God doesn't just use super Christians. First of all, there is no such thing. Uh, but if there were... He doesn't just use them. I more often than not find myself, like Esther, cowering or ducking or trying to, trying to tiptoe through life and, and not cause waves and be bold with my faith rather than being, you know, like, I picture Paul as this man with, like, his cape flapping in the wind who's like, to live as Christ, to die is gain. Right, like, I don't see myself that way. But Esther, God wants to use her still. He has a plan for her still. He has a purpose for her still. So I say that to tell you, I don't care if you feel like super Christian this morning, or you feel like a miserable joke of a Christian this morning. God has a plan for your life. No, no, you don't understand what I did. But if you knew my passion, no, no, buts, no. He has a plan for your life. You haven't been more of a coward than Esther. You haven't broken, you know, as, as many commands as Esther. Like he, he has a plan for you. He's going to use her. And he wants to use you. So don't for a second think that the ship has sailed and I just have to go through life with a guilt complex just thinking of what could have been and how God could have had a plan for my life and I messed it all up and you know, his perfect will is gone and and, you know, it's, it's no longer on the table for me. Stop, stop, stop. God wants to use you. And I mean that. And you gotta get a hold of that that that's that's hopeful that's helpful that is encouraging to know that no matter who you are what you've done god legitimately he loves you and he wants to use you for his purposes and for his glory he really does he really does here's what esther says in return to mordecai esther bade them return to mordecai this answer verse 15 go gather together all the jews that are present in shushan and fast ye for me neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise, and so will I go in unto the king, which once again, in case you forgot, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. Now true to the narrator's style, he never mentions God in the whole book, never mentions, you know, miracle, angel, prayer, none of that. He doesn't mention prayer, but it is fitting to assume that when she is requesting that they go fast, that she is also requesting that they pray as well. It's it's not explicitly mentioned, but it's certainly implied. And what Esther is saying more or less is I'm willing to step up to the plate. I'm willing to be a woman of faith, but I need God's help. And I trust that prayer and fasting together will give us the best shot at at obtaining God's help. That's what she says. I need God's help, and I'm going to trust that praying and fasting together will give us the best shot at obtaining that help. But if I perish, I perish. Which isn't a martyr complex. It isn't fatalistic. It's I'm going to trust myself into God's control. We're gonna pray about this, we're gonna fast about this, but then I'm going to to trust myself to God's control. And I think that if we had just that, those simple set of convictions that Esther has right here, if we took into this week, just that simple set of convictions, we would we would be so much better off. If we as a church body and as individual Christians took into this week, I need God's help for my life this week, and I'm gonna trust God that praying and seeking that help and even fasting coupled together with that is my best shot at obtaining the help of God, that I'm gonna do that. What what a simple set of convictions, but what a potent set of convictions. Would you be willing to pray and fast to obtain God's help? Jesus told us to pray for his help in, in the model prayer, the Lord's prayer, right? Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Lord, I can't deliver myself from evil. I, 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 can't, I can't protect myself. I need you. I need your protection. I need your help. Keep me safe spiritually. Keep me, health, keep me safe uh, physically. Deliver me from the evil because I've, I've struggled against my sin, but I can't figure it out all on my own. I need your power. I need your help, right? Would you be willing to pray to that end this week? Would you be willing to fast for that? You say fast. What do you mean fast? I mean fast. Like that's the fast. You know what fasting is. Donald Whitney, I love what he says in his book, Spiritual Disciplines. He has a chapter on certain select spiritual disciplines, but he has one on fasting. And he says that fasting is the most feared and misunderstood of all the spiritual disciplines. I think he's right. We fear fasting because we generally think that it will be a negative experience. We think, like, that does not sound fun. That does not sound great. Uh, You know, my level of things that I would potentially want to do in faith would be, like, walk on hot coals with my bare feet, handle poisonous snakes, and then fast, like right under that, okay? And I'm not advocating for the former two, but I am for, for the last one. Most people don't want to do this, don't consider it. In my limited experience, most Christians do not fast hardly ever. Many Christians have never fasted for anything a day in their life, and fasting is very misunderstood because there's very little awareness of it. It's just not talked about a lot. But the irony is the Bible talks about it a lot. Fasting, this may surprise you, is mentioned more than baptism in the Bible. Is there a lot? It's all through the Scriptures. Whether it be the Jewish people uh, being necessitated to have a day of fasting for the Day of Atonement, or whether it be different examples of people that fast, you find that, that Ezra fast as they want to take this journey from Persia back to the homeland, and they pray and fast for safety as they go. Nehemiah fasts that the Lord would give him the opportunity and the resources to be able to build the walls back up in Jerusalem and be able to go there. Esther fasts for the deliverance of her people. Daniel devoted himself to prayer and fasting in Daniel chapter number 9. We know that Jesus, of course, fasted 40 days in the wilderness, and he did not eat for 40 days. We know the early church fasted. That they, at Antioch, they fasted and they prayed before the Lord led them to send out Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey. 1 Corinthians 7 tells us that husbands and wives that are both saved should at times uh, stop and remove themselves from sexual activity and dedicate themselves to prayer and fasting for a season. And I go on and on. All through the Bible is the idea of, of fasting. You say, okay, help me define that. So let me help us not misunderstand what fasting is and just be really crystal clear, Okay. What Esther advocates here for is an absolute fast. There's an absolute fast, a normal fast, and a partial fast. So an absolute fast is what she says, let us not eat or drink. So an absolute fast is I don't eat anything, I don't drink anything. It is not recommendable to do that for an extended period of time because you need to drink something, okay? A normal fast, or what you would typically see in the Scriptures, is I do not eat anything, but I will drink water. Sometimes people will even have a juice fast, maybe because their blood sugar levels are diabetic and they have to monitor that sort of stuff. Uh, So you do have to put health in this. If you have bad health, I'm not saying this is the greatest idea in the world. But a normal fast is not eating, but I will drink. A partial fast would be I will preclude myself from partaking in some sort of select thing that I oftentimes do, maybe coffee. Some of you are like, do not touch my coffee, okay? But a partial fast would be like, I'm not going to drink coffee, you know, for a day or three or a week or whatever. So there's absolute, there's normal, and there's partial. Esther advocates for absolute, but the bottom line is that Christian fasting and that spiritual discipline that's all through the Scriptures is a Christian voluntarily abstaining from food for spiritual purposes. Saying, I am going to, not because someone's making me, not because I'm in prison or something, they won't feed me. I'm going to voluntarily stop partaking in food, and I'm going to do this for a spiritual purpose, which does delineate it that's different than for just a physical purpose because intermittent fasting is very popular right now. There's a lot of diets that center around the idea of intermittent fasting, you know, eat at six o'clock and then don't eat till noon the next day or something like that so if you want to do that it's fine for a physical purpose that's not wrong but the point is that true fasting is for a spiritual purpose and here's how this works you say that doesn't sound fun what's well, not entirely fun but it's, the idea is that it's it's a spiritual benefit let's say that you decide i want to fast for a day you wake up in the morning probably not that hungry unless you eat breakfast every day like clockwork, but I don't eat breakfast, so for me, I'm fine. Once lunch rolls around, though, my stomach rumbles, right? You get hunger pains, and all of a sudden you think, I'm hungry. Oh, yeah, I'm hungry because I'm not eating. And you think, I'm not eating because I'm praying for and fasting for this. And then your mind is suddenly prompted to pray for that, right? And then a little bit further goes on, and now you have a a headache because you haven't eaten or because you haven't had your caffeine fixed for the day or whatever that may be. Oh, I have a headache. Man, I don't like that. Oh, I have that because I'm fasting. Oh, I'm fasting for this. And it is, it is an idea, number one, to prompt you to pray more often for that request, but also to demonstrate the seriousness of it to God. And this is not to say that, you know, God's never going to answer your request if, if you don't fast, but it does, it is very tough to not eat, okay, for most people at least, because we want to eat. We like it. We're self-indulgent. So when someone decides I'm going to, like Esther, I'm going to take three days, and I'm not going to eat anything, and I'm not going to drink anything, that's not an easy thing, but it demonstrates the seriousness of the request and says, like, God, I'm taking this request to a whole other level. Like, I really mean it. This is really important to me. I'm going to pray and fast for this. So that's what fasting is. You can do that for a meal. You can do that for a day. You can do that for three. Jesus did it for 40. You can choose anywhere in between. But that's what fasting is. And the point of today's sermon is to point out that Esther called for a corporate fast. What Esther said, and let me make one more more distinction, and and then we'll bring this home, okay? Jesus did say in Matthew that when you pray and fast, don't do it like the hypocrites and let everybody know. So what he was saying was, if you pray and fast, don't do it for, you know, oh, look, I'm super spiritual, look at me. But he was not saying that you can never let anybody know because there are times like this where there is a corporate fast. Esther obviously let people know she was fasting and she invited them to join her. It's not wrong to let someone know you are. It's not wrong to invite someone into to fast with you. And this is a corporate fast. And the point of today is moving towards this moment where I'm going to make a big request of you, okay? My request for you is that you would actually pray and fast for our church at some point in time in the next week. Obviously, I'm not going to make you, I'm not going to, you know, make you sign something. I'm not even going to check up on you and say, did you do this? Did you honor the request? But I would ask as your pastor, and I think that we could take a good lesson from Esther, if we said, why don't we this week have a corporate fast? And whether it's a meal or whether it's a day or whether it's three, why don't we pray and fast together? You say, why would we do that? Well, number one, it would be good for us just to grow in the discipline. Number two, I think that we need God. Right? Esther prayed and fasted because she understood I need God's help and the best way to get God's help would actually be to pray and to fast. You say, well, is, is there like some, some big impending doom for us? Is there something big or disastrous? Some calamity happened? No. But we understand as we go through church, and even what we're doing today, that we should not go through today, hum, drum, go through the motions, oh, we just go to church, and we show up, and we sing, and like, we preach, and we share the Bible, and, and it's, just, it's just what we do. No, we understand that this is a spiritual endeavor, that being a Christian, or a, a good Christian, if you want to call that, living the Christian life with seriousness, or us as a church corporately, being the church with seriousness, is something that we need God's help for, Right? It's not something that's automatic. It's not something that just comes. And if we think, oh, you know what? We're 35 years into this. We're established. There's some people here. There's money in the bank. We can rest on our laurels. We're idiots. We are. And and I fall into that trap all the time of just kind of going through the day and not really recognizing my need for God, my need for his help, and my need for divine aid each and every single day. And as a church, I want us to understand and maybe even recommit ourselves in some way, shape, or form this week with some prayer and fasting and say, Lord, we just simply recognize we need your help. We we absolutely need your help. You say, where would we need his help? I'm glad you asked. I'll give you a couple practical things you could pray for. If you want to take a picture of this on the screen or something, you can. We'll try even to put it in our, in our email this week, coming to you on Wednesday. Pray for mission. God, keep us on mission. We want people to be saved, to so like understand the good news of Jesus. We want people to be baptized. We want people to be discipled for your glory. That's, that's what we're here for. Pray for wisdom. James talks about that. Lord, give our leaders supernatural wisdom as they shape and guide this church. I need that. I'd be the first to admit... You guys took a chance on asking me to be your lead pastor. It was a chance. I've told you this repeatedly. I wouldn't have taken the chance, but you did. So that's on you. But I'm, I'm young and I need wisdom, like 100% from people around me, but also from the Lord. I have no problem recognizing that, that I need the wisdom of God. I hope you do too. Unity. Pray for unity. Jesus prayed for this in John 17, right before he was crucified. Help us to love each other with a deep, unifying love. And then even pray for daily bread. There are different requests that just our church would have, things like just practical needs, things like, Lord, we've been working real hard to, to be aggressive with our debt and get our debt paid off. Provide the funds so that we can pay that off. We've, we've, been, we've made a lot of progress over the last couple of years, but we'd love to get that paid off or insert any other request that you may have in there. But would you join me? Here's my request. And I off, it is irregular that I say in a sermon, I'm gonna make an ask of you that we would all do this together. I've, I can't think of the last time I did. Maybe, I don't know. I'm trying to think of it. I can't. It's irregular that I do, but my ask is that not just that you would consider, that you would decide, I'll do this this week. I'll, because we want the Lord to bless our church, and we understand we need his help, and we understand the best way to procure that help would actually be to ask him, to go to him and say, We're needy. We need your help. And not just to pray, but to fast. So take a meal, take a day, take three, and I hope that you'll join me. Lastly, I have a big idea. So the big idea is, is completely independent from the big request. And the big idea is that Esther saved her people by two things, identification and mediation. Esther is this person, and spoiler alert, okay? If you don't know the book of Esther, uh, this is gonna go well, the king's not gonna kill her, okay? She's gonna end up saving her people when it's all said and done. But she saves her people through identification and mediation. She's willing, number one, to identify with her people, which is not the safe thing to do, because the people are under judgment and death and destruction and condemnation, but she's willing to identify with the condemned and come under that condemnation herself. And because she identifies, then she can mediate and go to her husband, the king, and say before the throne of power, like no one else could, I actually want to plead on behalf of my people and procure favor for them and then I want to take that favor and impute it to them and Esther is this person who saves her people through identification and mediation. And My question would be, does that remind you of anyone? Like does, does that story ring a bell at all? Because the whole Christian gospel is that we had a God who was willing to identify with us who is willing to leave heaven and become man and take on flesh and actually identify with the creation. The one who is not just willing to identify with us by becoming human, but actually would become condemned. And not because someone conjoled him or, or argued him into it or somehow put a little pressure on him, but he identifies with us and he takes on our condemnation and he dies for us on the cross, not at risk of his life, but at certain cost of his life. It's not if I perish, I perish, but when I perish, I perish. And I will go, and I will perish, and I will identify so that I can become the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So that I will become the one that can go into the throne of power, and I can say, I am the sacrifice, and I mediate on behalf of the people, and I take my righteousness and impute it to them Would you spare them from condemnation and from judgment and from wrath? And the story of Esther is that there is a better mediator, Jesus, who identifies with us and mediates for us so that we can be removed from condemnation and wrath and death and destruction. Not physically, but spiritually. that he delivers us from that because of his identifying mediating work. And we, as we enter into a time of communion together this morning, where we stop and we remember that Jesus died for us and gave his body for us and shed his blood for us, this is a time for us to remember that Jesus identified and mediated on our behalf. So my, my encouragement and my ask for you right now is that you would take your communion cups and that you would join me as we go through this process together. Jesus, right now we stop and we remember what you did for us.